This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Alper. And also farewell to Useful Idiots. Well, not really. Not really. So we have an announcement. Yeah, um, drum, drum roll, left, please. We're no longer going to be uh, in this space. Uh, Rolling Stone and Useful Idiots are parting ways. We don't have to get into the no. details of why exactly that is, but yeah. uh, this is our 80th episode, and we're not going to stop. We're going to continue uh, doing the show. Uh, it's just going to move to a new home. It's going to usefulidiots.substack.com. We'll be able to give you more information about that, but it looks like we're going to keep on the same schedule, so you can expect a show to Every drop. Every week, yes. Exactly. Yeah, until YouTube, the end of time. Until the end of time. If you feel lost, just go to usefulidiots.substack.com, and yeah, it's going to be the same great show at the same great time, just not sponsored by the same great outlet. That's right, yeah. Uh, we said with a smile. So, um, yeah. and thanks to Rolling Stone for the ride. It's yes, been good. It, and, it, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's been great. We're all we're all entering new stages in our in our in our lives. Yes, Matt, would you like to share the other stage you entered? Yeah, I I mean I'm I'm older. Yeah, that, you, that's you circled the, around the the world one more time. That's right. That's right. I turned. I just turned uh, 51 <laughs> this week. So I've I've been too old for the club. I looked it up. Apparently, the the maximum age to be to be in the club. Is thirty seven. What's the club? You know the whole that expression like too old. He's too old for the club. Oh, no. she... I didn't know about that. Well, I don't accept that cutoff. You don't. Okay. Well. Well, because I'm cut me. I'm not going to say anything, but that may not include me. Right. I know I right. look no more than twenty five, but yeah. Yeah. Not not a day older. Look, it was, it was just a day like any other day. But the one great surprise was that you made a video for me. I did make a video. Do we have that? Just to, as a preface, the joke here, part of the joke here is that, you know, this is obviously a two-person show. And, uh, you know, in every, in every professional pairing, there has to be a leader and a follower. There has right. to be a number one and a number two. And so this, this birthday message is um, for number two. Everyone wants to be number one. True. Ooh. It's much better being number two. And then it says, happy birthday. You're the S star star T. How much original work was that was was there in that? If I didn't respect you so much, I would lie and say that there was a lot of elbow grease put into that. But the truth is, there's an app called Jib Jab. Uh-huh, right. And I did pick that. And I dragged your face into it. It's and fine. a lot of thought went into it and you, you know, but yeah, it, it's an app. Is that the it's same jib jab that they did the, the famous John Kerry versus Bush? Probably. Yeah, yeah I think was... it started out that way and then they turned it into an app. It's really great, actually. You should, um, uh, you can use it for I'll, lots I'll of different things. I'll have to things. check it out. Anyway, yeah. I appreciate it. it was, okay, uh, yeah, That good. was very nice. So, sure, I um, tweeted it out. Yeah, very happy to be number two uh, yeah. with you. So um, 
Look, this is our last show. We've got to, we've. Uh, no, no, no. It's not our last show. Hold on. It's our last Rolling Stone show. Right. It's our last like, Rolling Stone show. And it's a good one. We have um, uh, a guest, uh, Stella Morris, who is, how would you describe Stella? She is a barrister and uh, also happens to be the uh, partner, life partner of Julian Assange. And they met when she was working on his case. Um, they have had uh, two children. And as she gets into during the interview, um, there was a lot of uh, obstacles to their having children. Many. Uh, you, you, Many. Unique ones. Living, yeah. yeah, unique ones. Yeah, not your regular drama, not your regular boy meets girl, rather boy meets girl. Under heavy surveillance. Under heavy surveillance. It's a really important story. And it's, in I mean, I think the personal side of it is important because Assange is so vilified and smeared. Um, and it's an important reminder that, you know, politics aside, and I think it's a very black and white case, the guy should not be in jail, extradited. I think it's an important thing to, to just remind people that this is a human being and that almost everything you've heard about him that's negative is either not true or not confirmed. Right? right. Like, well, yeah, right. Yes, that's probably true. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Or I'll just say like none of the reasons that people think that he's um, being punished have nothing to do with technically have nothing to do with 2016. Yeah, I, th I think almost I think it's safe to say that the prevailing legends about him are not true. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but the uh, but yeah, no, the, the case is, uh, is amazing. And she goes into really uh, tremendous detail yeah. about it. So we're going to talk to her in a bit. Yeah. Well, let's just get to it. The four food groups. Uh, I guess I'm up for Democrats. Suck. Yeah. I was going to go with the whole thing about the parliamentarian. Yeah. Um, you know, c canceling the minimum wage thing because there's a couple of things about that that are yeah. that are. First of all, it's kind of uh, malodorous to me. Like I don't think the Democratic leadership really wants to have a fifteen uh, fifteen yeah. uh, dollar minimum wage. No. So if you know, they did, they could do what Republicans have done in the past, which is ignore it, ignore the parliamentarian, well, or fire the parliamentarian, yes, or not le leak ahead of time. I mean, come on. Right. They, they mentioned ahead of time they didn't think it was going to work. Come on. Yes. And the parliamentarian's ruling is a recommendation, not a law. To, it, dep it depends on how you want to look at it. But right. I just wonder if there's there are other shenanigans afoot. Like, wouldn't wouldn't it be great if we could just vote for this thing, but then have it be killed by the parliamentarian like that? But we, we decided not to go with that. But and just one thing before we move on from that. Um, we want to give a shout out to and moment of silence for. Oh, Tiranandan for Tiranandan, yeah. yeah. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a. This is a moment of gloating silence. We're yeah. gonna we're we're gonna gloat for ten seconds. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. This is the that's last it. time we're 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 uh, we're not ever gonna mention it again. So let's let's start now. Ready? Okay. Go. All right, so All right, that was good. Great. That was that 10 was seconds of gloating. Let's start with uh, Democrats suck. We've got I th what I think is the ultimate example. Oh, that's so it. great. That's taking um, away, yeah. Uh, Elvis, if we could see this. Go to uh, the, the video the tape. MSNBC uh, clip here. This is uh, the former CIA director, John Brennan. Talking to former Bush um, spokeswoman, uh, Nicole Wallace. And of course, both of these people definitionally are parts of our major fixtures on MSNBC. Well, I must say, to Claire's point, I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male these days. <laughs> in light of what I see of my other white males saying. But it, it just shows that with, the, with very few exceptions like Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, 
There are so few Republicans in Congress who value truth, honesty, and integrity. And so they'll continue to gaslight the country the way that Donald Trump did. And the fact that this has such security and safety implications for the American public and for the members of Congress, again, as Claire said, it is just a disgusting display of craven politics that really should have no place in the United States in 2021. There are three funny things in there, uh, the, the least funny being that he used the word gaslight. Gaslighting. Like, I yeah, mean, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. The other one is that this is a guy who's who's uh, who perjured himself to Congress talking about there being an insufficient number of people dedicated to truth and honesty. Uh, and then well, he, he would know because he's not part of that group. I guess so. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the, the idea that, you know, somebody who oversaw a drone assassination program, torture, rendition, uh, secret prison network, uh, and mass sur surveillance that what he's embarrassed by uh, is being a white male. He's not that embarrassed, apparently, uh, to back all sorts of things, as you pointed out, Matt. And I didn't hear him like complaining about, you know, something we haven't spoken about, no one's spoken about at all. And it's really disgusting is the whole Syria bombing thing. Oh, yeah, it, I mean, it, just, it, just, it just happened. Yeah, it just happened. And like, I thought there was a return to normal, which meant like, I thought there was diplomacy. Um, I thought we were celebrating normal stuff. Anyway, now this, this is part of the whole uh, formula of Clintonian politics. It's right. like, it's like getting your car registration, you got to do you have to bomb somebody like once a year, it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? It doesn't have yeah, to you be... don't have to make it so yeah, you keep it. So it's it's like, uh, he has decorum. When he does right. it, Biden, yeah. So I guess, sorry, I, I brought that up. That was kind of unconnected. But I, I think when I saw that, I was like, I'm just reminded he, as a CIA guy, has overseen so much violence. Also, the whole tradition of the CIA is, is, is <laughs> it's a whole bunch of like white dudes who were, who were in the Skull Society. Yeah, that's what he should be embarrassed by. He should you be know? embarrassed that he was in the CIA and Skull and Bones. And uh, I don't yeah, know if he, I don't, I don't know if he personally was in well, Skull and Bones. Well, he's a Skull and Bones adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. So, yeah. Anyway. I mean, be embarrassed about being in the CIA. Then you can check your white male privilege. But why don't you start with the more structural problems with your right. biography, John? Yeah. And I don't know whether he it's he technically qualifies as a Democrat. I mean, he he, he did vote for Gus Hall, the communist, once. Uh, in, what? Yeah, in 1976. Uh, but wait, why and how? Uh, it's a long story. You have to read his his, his book is, is quite odd on that subject. But now he's he's like a bona fide member of the hashtag resistance. So I think he qualifies. Oh yeah, definitely. Book. Yeah. What do we have for uh, Republicans? Okay, so Republican suck. We have a kind of refreshing. This is almost like Republicans are awesome or Republicans rock. <laughs> How many times has this happened to us? I know, it happens show? all the time. So this is reading on NBC News. In Supreme Court, GOP attorney defends voting restrictions by saying they help Republicans <laughs> win. So if you scroll down, I'll just read. This is pretty amazing. An attorney for Arizona's Republican Party offered a blunt reason for his presence defending the state's voting restrictions before the Supreme Court on Tuesday. The measures disadvantage Democrats. So the Supreme Court is hearing arguments over Arizona voting restrictions in a pair of consolidated cases challenging a state law banning ballot collection and a policy that tosses ballots cast in the wrong precinct. 
Democrats have sued, saying the rules discriminate against minorities and violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The case could have big implications outside of Arizona if the justices create a test for how to evaluate such voting rights cases under the voting rights legislation. And here's the, the really interesting part. So Justice Amy Coney Barrett, or what do we call her? Amy, a- Amy, Co- Amy Harry yeah, Conehead. Harry Conehead said, what's the interest of the Arizona RNC in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct ballot disqualification rules on the books. And Michael Carvin, the lawyer defending the state's restrictions said, because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero sum game and every vote they get through unlawful interpretation of section two hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing an election 51 to 50. So I don't know, I, I guess it's like refreshing. Yeah, they I mean, usually it, pretend that there are reasons other than electoral victory. Or that you you win cases based on legal reasoning. Right. Right. Like, I, I, I actually, this is an interesting new new kind of legal theory, like, you know, honesty. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Your Honor, I'm going to, you know, my, my argument is going to be one of <laughs> that, has, that has no legal basis, but I'm, I'm just going to be straight with you here. We want this because it helps us. It helps us uh, win. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, the interesting thing about this is like for for things like this, it doesn't matter if the intention is racist or discriminating, I guess. Um, it's whether the outcome is. So that would that sh- I wonder what he would say to that. Hmm. I don't know how you talk your way out of it. Is it just like there's press? We are going there should be precedent. Uh, electoral victory trumps um, voting well, rights. Well, I'm sure I'm sure they're going to argue that the votes are illegitimate themselves. I mean, they right. there has to be yeah. they they they, ha, they must be arguing yeah. that there's no cool way. Yeah, they didn't though. What if they were like, no, they're legal. We just got to get rid of them. Well, not even that they're legal, but that that, that they're actual people who, right. who 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 would be legally allowed to vote, right? Yeah. Um. But uh, if that were not the case, that would be really, really, that that would be ballsy. Yeah. You know, either yeah. way, it's pretty, it's either pretty way, good. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I of like course, it. the real Republican suck is like Texas opening everything up again and uh, removing a mask mandate or not mandate, whatever their mask thing is. So people are going to die. I'm not vindictive against Texans, just like against their politicians who vote for this. And they should all be put in a room with a rotting COVID corpse and injected with COVID. That's my screenplay, not something I'm You advocating. don't have anything against Texans, no. but you just want that no, to happen. They're go- no, not, not civilians, not the people who uh, are at the, just living the circumstances that they've been dealt by having these people in power. I'm just saying I would like Ted Cruz to be in a coffin. This is my, but but not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying because he's dead, he should be alive when he's put in the coffin. <laughs> and um, we can check on him and make sure he's still alive. And then we just put a COVID corpse in there with him. And, um, you know, because he's he has a lot of. And then when he actually does die, you can. I'll say I'll be so sad. Well, okay, I was going to I was going to go somewhere else with that. Oh, oh, I see. Coming. Yeah, Yeah. our fans are going to want one last necrophilia discussion, I'm sure. But we'll try to work it in later. Right. Yeah, exactly. I understand completely your your feelings about Texans in that that regard. Not Texans, but Texan Republicans and whatever complicit Dems and Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz. I want them together in a coffin with a rotting COVID corpse. With a rotting COVID corpse. I mean, look, I'm being very generous and charitable. I'm not calling on anyone to harm them. 
I'm just, I have some sleeping arrangement suggestions. Demands. <laughs> That's right. Demands it's, for them. It's kind of a Three Stooges yeah. sort of a, right, yeah. I get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that's the Republican sucks so far. Isn't that weird? At first, the story is, this is from the UPI, carpool lane driver found to be using mannequin passenger. First of all, for those just listening, it's a pretty good looking mannequin. It's got realistic eyes, glasses. It's got a Cleveland Indians cap um, and a COVID mask on. The face is old. And then has kind of like hipster glasses and like a hipster like hair. Yeah. yeah. Look, one of the advantages of COVID is that the face mask makes it a lot easier to have a dummy in your passenger seat. Yeah. And when you're yeah. doing in the HOV lane. And if you scroll down, there's a quote from the California Highway Patrol. The California Highway Patrol said a driver using the high occupancy vehicle lanes of a highway was found to actually be traveling alone, except for, quote, one of the best dummies police had ever seen. It says the officer soon discovered the apparent, quote, man sitting in the passenger seat of a truck was actually a highly realistic mannequin, complete with a COVID-19 face mask. Uh, and then again, there's a quote from the CHP talking about how impressed they were with, uh, with this dummy. And so I wondered how frequently this happened. So I started looking up to, to see if there were similar stories about uh, people being arrested with dummies. And then I found a, a story, a, a local news story from uh, our area in New York um, that is like a masterpiece of local news reporting. Oh. See if you can count the local news writing cliches say, yeah. in this piece at the beginning. When the person riding questions. shotgun isn't actually a person, well, life in the fast oh, lane wow. can take its toll. <laughs> Even cops don't take the imposters too seriously. I said, what is that? As they bust drivers for adding fake passengers to sneak into high occupancy lanes that require more than one. And now we have a new oh. favorite fake whose identity will soon be revealed. I'm not the first dummy to sit in this seat. Oh Let's count down our favorite dummy, number 10. All right, then they go much on Jack, so, This inflatable so This is amazing. Wait, so this is like, the, they have like the, the the evidence of the worst dummies? We got to watch this. It's not that long, it, it, is it? Okay, it, go, it goes on for a while, but yeah. Let's watch a couple. Can we watch, see a couple? Sure, yeah. The, the yeah. first one's clearly a sex doll, and they, they, she doesn't Oh, you up. see, I didn't even know that. I don't think she knows that. She's not much to look at. See? This inflatable could be the cousin of an airbag. Number nine, at least Tilly, a styrofoam head from a beauty supply store, looked angelic with hangers for shoulders and stuffing for legs. Number eight, just a head, not just a head, just a head, propped up on a jacket. Number seven, the cousin of Dora the Explorer, <laughs> a trooper pulled the car over when he observed the passenger with huge, unblinking eyes. That's cute. <laughs> Number oh, this six, is good. I can't believe you don't want to with her this. teddy belted in. And I turn and I see a motorcycle cop and I just have this huge smile on my face. Oh, so she got a $260 ticket. She's Number five, a driver who works with plexiglass for a living built this plexiglass cutout. Number four, she's a babe. Just don't ask her to step out of the car, ma'am. One driver chose the no bare legs. bones approach. Oh, God, here we go. Number oh, it's like, it's in the bare bones approach? I know, that's good. I can't believe you almost denied us and closet. our viewers of this. But why bother to fake a passenger? Oh. You can just dress up the seat with a cap and T-shirt. Like so bad, it's good. Which brings us to the new number one dummy. James Campbell was pulled over on the Long Island Expressway sitting next to this, Wood in a hoodie. 
The deputy asked. Passenger, can I see some ID? And I said, officer, I don't think so. Campbell says the dummy's sister is down in his basement dressed <gasps> oh. in a tutu. He showed no remorse right after being ticketed. I've been using it for months. I came home on the HOV lane. He plans to use it again with a different <laughs> outfit. Knock on wood. Oh, CNN. excellent, excellent, all right. New York. Didn't that, that kind of freaked me out, that guy who has a sister character to the wooden body in a hoodie. That oh, I'm sure there's all kinds of scenarios playing out in that basement. I don't think she knew it was a sex toy at the beginning because I didn't know it was. What do you call it? A sex what? A sex... It's an inflatable sex toy. Sex doll. A sex, sex doll, right? Yeah, sex doll. I didn't know that. There's no way she knew that because if she had, it wouldn't have been number 10. Probably you know what I'm not. Saying? It would have been like number one or I bet you they wouldn't have even shown it if they knew that. I, I mean, what do you what does she think that mouth hole is for? Is it? Well, I think more interesting is that it's the top of the head. It's cut. Isn't the top of the head cut off? I, yeah, I didn't. Anyway. I'm not sure what that's for, but maybe she I, thinks I, like I, the mouth hole could just be a, a realism. Like they were just going for realism. That's fine. You know, there's no realistic artistic justification for having the top of the head cut off. So that's right. what I, I don't I don't hate her for the other thing. Right, right. I just I just love all the puns. Oh my god! You know the the bare bones approach. Bare I'm bones. not the first dummy to sit oh in my this god, that seat. Was great. Yeah. yeah, and life in the fast lane fast can lane, take yeah. its toll. Toll. Yeah, that's good. It open. Yeah, it starts off so good. <laughs> Very good stuff. Yeah, so. you really uh rode that one to the bitter end. That, there. Yeah, yeah. I, I should have stayed in my lane. You should have stayed in your lane. I'm glad yeah. I pushed you outside of your comfort lane uh, by making you play the full video because. Uh, because uh, that was quite a ride. Uh, <laughs> Signing off. I'm, Ka yeah. I'm Katie Halper, <laughs> CNN News New York. Yeah. yeah. I'm all revved up now after watching that. You're, you're revved up? Yeah, I have one good one. <laughs> Not to shift gears too abruptly, but let's move from weird, uh, weird to terrible. Uh, I'm going to put the brakes on that one. Let's, let's, I'm going to put the brakes on that story. Let's carpool our resources. Yeah. Okay. So, um, nice. This is an absolutely disgusting, disgusting story. And this is sent in. Thanks. Shout out to David L. Wind, as in um, W I N D T. Uh, and this is a story reported in Al Jazeera about a rooster fitted with a knife for an illegal cockfight in southern India has killed its owner, sparking a manhunt for the organizers of the event. <laughs> oh, I thought that was for the for the rooster. I know, me too. Apparently, the bird had a knife attached to its leg when it inflicted serious wounds to the man's groin as it tried to escape, police said on Sunday. The victim, Sangula Satish, 45, died from loss of blood before he could reach a hospital in the Karimgar district of Telangana state last week okay so satish was hit by the rooster's knife in his groin and started bleeding heavily now this is like the worst part i can't i can't I'm, it's not okay the article says the rooster was briefly held at the local police station before it was sent to a poultry farm <laughs> to be and eaten i get and then and the cop says we may need to produce it before the court i don't is he joking or serious i oh maybe yeah. he's not maybe he doesn't mean that's okay then in, in which case that's okay it's still alive but this is disgusting. I mean, it's very hard for me to feel bad for this guy. Maybe if he has kids or something, but yeah, the, these things are real. They're banned, but they're, they're still common in rural areas of Telangana and certain states. It was so gross. Okay. Especially bred roosters have 7.7 .7 centimeters or three inch knives or blades tied to their legs and punters bet on who will win the gruesome fight. Battles continue until one contestant is either dead or flees, declaring the other rooster the winner. And thousands of roosters die each year in this. I mean, for me, the isn't that terrible is not that they killed that a rooster killed his 
abuser. It's that they have these abusive cockfights. That's the terrible part. And maybe I, isn't that kind of a... Maybe? I guess, I mean, like, how do you distinguish between this and, you know, like, the sort of Auschwitz-like parade of chickens that are probably going into a factory somewhere to have their faces and other parts sucked off to be turned into Oh my god, you're going to uh, get so much trouble with the ADL. They're going to come after us. Luckily, we're not... A, for the Auschwitz, you can't... I mean, I'm fine with it, but you're going to get... You're going to get just, in trouble from the ADL, and then if you retract it, you're going to get in trouble from PETA. So, right. Uh, oh, well, I didn't, no, I I didn't mean like, that. I'm just saying that they like have mass, these. I don't like factory farming. You're right. I should, in fact, I should celebrate every time a farmer is killed by a chicken. It doesn't happen enough. Not the farmer, the owner of the terrible company. You know, like, go grab your copy of Zephyr Teachout's book, break them up, and don't blame the farmers, blame the big ag. Big tech, big ag. What are the other ones I need to call out? There's some other big, big pharma. Big, big pharma. Yeah, yeah. Look, again, I'm not Thanks. calling for anyone to be harmed. I'm just saying if it's a rooster versus a person, and the person is an executive, I'm just gonna say I hope the rooster scratches. Let's just say it doesn't have to be fatal. I don't know how that would ever happen. I don't think executives visit the the farms that they. Right. I I have to also say that. If you're in the business of uh, genetically modifying roosters to kill and right. then strapping knives on, on them, yeah, statistically it has to happen. Oh probably, yeah, it happened to another guy. Yeah, like uh, that. Eventually they're gonna, you know, you're gonna have a, a knife driven through your groin by your yeah, own rooster. Yeah, and they're still searching for the other 15 people involved in organizing the legal fight, and they could they could face charges of manslaughter, illegal betting, and hosting a cockfight. Last year, a man was killed when a blade attached to his bird leg, bird's leg hit him in the neck during mm -hmm. a cockfight. The old carotid artery yeah, uh, yeah. cockfight injury and, Yeah, death. and in 2010, a rooster killed its owner by slashing his jugular vein in West Bengal. Which, even me, who sides with the rooster, that makes me, you know, I don't like these stories at all. I don't want anyone to die any rooster to die, but um, put these people in a coffin with Ted Cruz. And <laughs> a, a decaying COVID corpse. A decaying COVID corpse, and actually with one of the roosters. Right, but then it would get really messy really no, quickly. You're, yeah, you're right. No, right? I don't. Yeah, that could be a death sentence for many people. And because there'd the be rooster. all these parts right, everywhere, that, yeah. and, and no, Ted not, Cruz's you know, beard probably wouldn't survive I, I either. I know. You know what? Up until you pointed that out, I thought it was a good idea, but now I'm realizing that the group coffin is not sanitary once you throw in a, a knife wielding rooster. Genetically modified. Genetically modified. If it were not genetically modified, maybe I'd be okay. Maybe it'd be okay. An ordinary rooster with it with a with a knife attached to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It could work. It could I'm work. Not, yeah, that. But but once it's honestly the line is the genetic modification, and that's when you know you've gone too far. That's when you know your group coffin plan has gone too far. <laughs> your COVID coffin. Your Airbnb. Basically, I'm creating a, an intimate Airbnb for Ted Cruz and cockfight organizers. If you could have a little little like lipstick camera in there, yeah. you can make a good HBO show out of that. It would I be like so Taxi too, Cab yeah. Confessions, except yeah. except it would, <laughs> there would there be no dialogue. It would just be it would just be squirming and right. and and struggling to breathe and that sort of thing. They could talk. I bet I bet Ted Cruz would get some words out. He could. And he, Abbott. He, yeah. Abbott, have you noticed Greg Abbott his his S's? They're very he he says them like that. Maybe it's like a he's like a fan of noir movies or something like that. You know the yeah kind of that bogey. 
technique. Oh, yeah. Does yeah, he yeah. say that with the S? Yes. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember the day well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Germans wore gray. You wore blue. Why yeah. does he talk like he has something in his mouth, but he's not opening his teeth? I don't know. He was cool, though. Yeah, he married um, Lauren Bacall. Yeah, I was just watching the big, the big, the big, big sleep, sleep, the very yeah. sleep the other day. So um, she, Jewish, by the way, she was L Lauren Bacall. Mm -hmm. Her big, nice. her name was like Lori, Lauren, like Petitsky or something, or Petitsky. <laughs> I can't. What was it? You want anyway. to hear a really stupid joke since it's our last Rolling Stone? Act? Sure. It gets better. Don't worry. So who wrote the um, who wrote the Yellow River? The Yellow River. Yeah. I don't know. I P Daly. Oh, oh, God. Who wrote The Polish Milkman? Who wrote The Polish Milkman? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I Politicki. <laughs> and then who wrote The Russian Butcher? I don't know. Who? I cut your cock off. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, that was, that's, yeah, that's it. It's so bad. It's so good. <laughs> it's the whole humor that's so bad that's good yeah thing. i think I, yeah it's like cnn it's like that lady the yeah, yeah yeah she sold it really well yeah, uh you did too you did too yeah. no, no yeah. it's okay i kind of uh, called it home called it, no, called no. it in so no yeah. you didn't no we, we 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 put the same amount of hardcore effort into this last episode that we yeah. put into all of 79 previous yeah. episodes combined Combined. Combined. Yeah. Combined. Yeah. All right. So, guys, I'm just going to ease you into this because people have found it jarring. So we are now going to segue into an advertisement. Yeah. Put, put yourself in a different mental space and get yeah. ready for uh, an advertisement because yeah. we're going to talk about a podcast called True Underdog. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. You want to talk about your Substack story? Sure. Yeah. Just, just briefly, uh, last week, there was a um, a Twitter thread by a, a professor named Sarah Roberts, uh, who is the co-leader and co-founder of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, whose stated goal is, quote, strengthening democracy through culture making. And she went in this tirade about Substack, which is obviously where, I, I, you know, I work, you, you're going to, you work. And um, the, the thread is, is kind of amazing. And it's, it's, the reason I think it's worth talking about is because this is like becoming a thing now. Uh, there have been a number of fe of features in places like the New Yorker um, and and the New York Times wrote about Substack and uh, and there's this increasing like um, message that Substack is like it's not just 
annoying, but it's dangerous. And so she, she wrote a series of tweets. The first one says, Substack is a dangerous direct threat to traditional news media, uh, but more importantly, it's a threat to journalism. And here's her argument. Uh, journalists make their name doing reporting. Uh, this is governed by norms and practices and by ethics. Flawed and not always achieved, true, but present and guiding what newsrooms do in every way, yes. People not inside journalism or media may not know the specifics, but they often have a nebulous sense that there are norms, independence, disclosure of compromise, editorial oversight, and vetting of the reporting. That's what makes them trust enough to buy or and read or watch. What's less obvious is when there is a reporter who makes her name in a newsroom, traditional paper or fully online outlet then leaves for Substack or any analog, taking that name reputation earned from work done in the context I just stated. In this way, an investigative reporter who has earned her bona fides in a newsroom and under both strict editorial and journalistic principles has just cashed out and turned herself into an opinion writer. She likes it because she's finally got her independence from an editor. Please do not write or pay for Substack. I have to say it. I believe it's dangerous. Take heed. You read it here first. She actually went on to say uh, quite a lot of other things. But uh, the essence of this argument is that basically it's like a stolen valor thing. And she's clearly referring, I, I think, primarily to uh, Glennon Greenwald and myself, uh, mm -hmm. because uh, not many of the Substack contributors kind of fit the description of investigative reporters who moved to, right. to the Substack. The implication is that... Uh, we got our reputations by, uh, you know, forged in the in the furnace of uh, tr mainstream media oversight, and then we just absconded with that, all that trust and credibility, and went to Substack to cash in. There's a couple of things that are offensive about this, but the subtext of this is that there's this whole reaction now um, to any implication that if you're not uh, being supervised by a credentialed company mm -hmm. or by an editor, um, it's not real journalism. You know, this is actually uh, a theme with that we're going to yeah. talk about with with our guest too, uh, Stella Morris. Which is, uh, you know, the, the the reason people are going to places like Substack is because the standards that she's talking about, all those norms, those hallowed norms, uh, have have really not done so well uh, in the last 20 years. I mean, there have been so many fiascos in in traditional news media, you know, starting with the WMD episode and, um, you know, going forward that people don't really have the same faith in traditional news media that they used to. And I, I think additionally, now there's, there's another uh, set of things that people are worried about that have to do with whether or not uh, outlets are politicized, they're taking um, an editorial line. There's a lot of uh, sort of homogenous content at the bigger papers, right? So everybody's kind of saying the same thing uh, and that can be on the left or the right. I worry about this because it's, um, it, it's this whole idea that alternative media, which has already taken such a huge hit in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, thousands of newspapers, have disappeared, right? About like roughly half the people who used to work in journalism no longer do. Um, we lost about 30, 35 billion dollars worth of revenue. Uh, there are, you know, t something like fifteen hundred communities in the country that don't have an, a, a news, a local newspaper anymore. So all the content is being driven to these big 
centralize largely national news organizations uh, and it's consolidating more and more. And those news organizations are becoming more like each other all the time. Right. These days it's hard to distinguish between Slate and Salon and Atlantic. Right. Not only are they swallowing up all these sort of smaller outlets, but they're becoming more like each other. So there's less and less. And so Substack is like a small, a relatively small thing. And the backlash is it's just so odd. You're like, you know, people are describing it as dangerous. It's like yeah. a little tiny piece of something. And it's just... Uh... I mean, you point out in your response to it, which you wrote on the dangerous site of Substack, but you point out a couple of things. And one of them is just like, just to, to clarify, because this is like just a point of order, like you were not just an investigative reporter. You wrote books and you wrote op-eds and you're well known for calling Goldman Sachs, what, a vampire squid? What, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, so this, so she didn't even do her homework. And, well, and right, as you point yeah, out, Glenn and... started as a blogger. But like, so that's just, I'm just saying that because so much for like responsible journalism and responsible investigating and, you know, being able to separate your feelings from just the facts, ma'am. What's more dangerous than the argument that Substack is dangerous is the flip side of that argument, which is that convent, con, uh, corporate media is not dangerous. Like that's just as dangerous to me, not to get too meta, but it really is. It's like, you don't have to worry, even though she says, journalists make their, their name doing reporting. This is governed by norms and practices and ethics. And by ethics, flawed and not always achieved, true, but present and guiding what newsrooms do in every way, yes. No, that's not true. And that's it's, why it's much more dangerous because you read about WMDs or you read about Russiagate uh, and you don't bring to that uh, that uh, critical eye that knows that this is like subjective opinion based. And that's so much more dangerous. Absolutely. And the point she's trying to make about trust, she's got it exactly backwards because, yes, there are procedures that once existed. Yeah. Uh, that people felt like they could rely upon to make sure that certain things didn't happen. But the business has kind of thrown a lot of those procedures overboard. Right. I mean, if she, if she worked in it, she'd know that once they started losing money in the 80s and 90s, the fact checkers were the first to go, right? And right. that's how things like Jason Blair happened. Like, um, you know, they they still do it in places, but not no nowhere near with the rigor that they used to. And then the politics have become so much more intense. Like, you know, that's the reason the, the New York Times sat on important stories, you know, that because yes. they didn't want to lose their intelligence sources. Right. So what what happens over time is that audiences aren't stupid. They they say that things don't turn out, the, uh, that the, that stories turn out not to be true, like the WMD story, like a lot of stuff, a lot of the Russiagate stuff. Um, and then they learn about things that the, you know, stories that were sat on by big organizations right. Uh, and and that's how they lose the trust. Be and other otherwise, there just wouldn't be an audience for people for things like this, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it would or it wouldn't be as big. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sure. Also, I really I just reviewing some of her tweets. So she says starting an outlet in which they are both reporter and editor without oversight and a subscription model that puts their material under the cloak of darkness. It is the allure of skirting these norms for quicker, dirtier reports as well as the big money that draws them. Not only are they earning off the subscription model, many high-profile writers are paid directly by Substack to be exclusive. It's the influencer model. If having subscriptions and paywalled things is dangerous, she must be very worried about the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, 
basically every reputable outlet. Yeah, the, the New York you, Times has almost wholly yeah. gone over to the subscription model. They're, yeah. They have the, the over 7 million subscribers now and the, lar the largest subscriber base in the world. And, and that's how they pay. do their business. Yeah. yeah. And for Matt's Substack, and, uh, you know, we'll get into this later, but for our show, it's not going to be all paywalled for instance, and you're right. not all paywalled. So like, just apply the norms and standards that you claim exist, or that you claim that you want to exist, or that do exist in journalism, just see, check it out. Do they exist? No, they don't. And again, this is very straightforward. This isn't a question of like, uh, you know, a textual analysis. It's literally, it is a subscription based model in the very reputable, allegedly reputable outlets that you're talking about. Also, she really suggests that there aren't conflicts of interest that happen in the corporate media. Oh, well, we just watched one. So, Which so one? Uh, no. John Brennan, so he's, oh, he's yeah. a paid contributor from MSNBC who regularly comments on stories that he himself has involvement in. And all those outlets that are loaded with these ex-spooks who, who are talking about stories like Russiagate where they were often involved, right? There's so much stuff like that going that, that goes on yeah. and, and, Looks, so, and rarely disclosed. Lest anyone think that this isn't rampant in corporate media, it is absolutely rampant. It's built into it. Last two things I'll say about this. There's nothing that precludes uh, doing all the things that build trust um, with audiences at you know, in an independent site, right? So like one of the, one of the things that builds trust is like when you make a mistake and you will make mistakes, right. you always do and is you, you admit them right. Uh, right. and you, and you keep them on, you keep them on the site. Right. Um, yeah. or if you do have a conflict, you disclose it, whatever. Those are things that you're likely to do as an independent, uh, journalist. Right. right? And you, and you, you know, even if you're your own editor, you're, you're, you're probably going to do some kind of fact checking somehow, probably even, you might even be more nervous about it than, right. than, somebody else because uh, it'll stick to you. But the only thing that I'll say that really makes me nervous about this is all the Substack people and, and a lot of the people who are kind of in independent media now, um, none of us think that these things are panaceas that they're, or that they're right. magic bullets that are going to fix media, which is a big problem in this country. Um, but they can be part of a solution right? Like this attitude that the only proper and real uh, source of information must come from the credentialed uh, right. approved sources. It's just so funny because a long time ago, I mean, not that even not even that long ago, when blogging first became a thing, yeah. if you remember that whole period, um, there was this explosion of kind of new media forms that showed up and some of them ended up becoming big institutions like Huffington Post or right. the Daily Cost or whatever it is. Um, not always. Daily Coast, because Mark Coast. Coast, that's why it's called the AI. Right, yeah. Once upon a time, that was a thing that people who described themselves as liberal would have cheered, right? This whole idea, oh, we're diversifying the landscape. But now there's this general sense, I, I, and, I, and I think it has a lot to do with Trump, this idea that that other kinds of media that are unsupervised, um, you know, are are, are, right. are dangerous, which is, and e even if they're a small piece of the landscape. So. Right. But anyway, uh, anyway. Cr crazy stuff. So, yeah. uh, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Yeah. On so click, us through click our... pay, click, pay, <laughs> subscribe, click, pay, subscribe. Yeah. Or just click. Or just click. Yeah. Because there's a lot right. of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. was a coincidence that this Substack story came out and that has nothing to do with our leaving Rolling Stone and or obviously this isn't like, you want to know a great parallel to Julian Assange? Obviously right. we're not doing that. I just yeah. realized that. 
So, uh, which brings us to our guests. Let's, uh, without further ado, talk to uh, Stella Morris. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We know that it must be a really stressful time. So we really appreciate your um, giving us time. And uh, I guess wanted to start out just talking about what the latest in the case is and what you think people should know about and can do about Julian's status, freedom, lack thereof. Yes. So Julian um, actually won against all expectations, won his extradition case at the lowest level uh, on the 4th of January. He only won um, because he has a history of clinical depression and because um, the judge considered that uh, there was enough medical evidence of the psychiatrists that had been assessing him and so on to uh, conclude that extraditing him would be tantamount to applying the death penalty. Um, but on all the other issues, there were about eight or nine separate legal issues about the public interest arguments um, uh, Julian lost. And what that leaves you with is that um, any other publisher, any other journalist uh, that had faced uh, the same uh, or similar accusations of, of news gathering and publishing, if they don't have a history of clinical depression and the doctors don't uh, reach the same conclusion, they are um, going to be extradited. They face uh, the, you know, the 175-year potential sentence, the same scenario. Uh, but there's a real risk still that uh, that Julian might be extradited because the U.S. has decided to appeal the decision, and so that's now going to appeal. And we don't have a decision yet by the higher court, the high court, it's called in the U.K., uh, as to whether it will hear the appeal. Um, so it's now in, in that process. The U.S. has lodged its arguments, and uh, the defense is lodging its counter arguments as to why uh, the should the appeal should be heard or not heard. I saw that you, after that decision, that you you described uh, weeping with joy at the at him winning, um, and I, 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 forgive me, I, I I thought that was a little odd because was it was it really a victory? Did did you, did you both consider it a victory? Because on another way of looking at it was that it was um, it, it sort of for, forestalls a decision that could lead to his his freedom even faster, couldn't it? I mean, he's essentially staying in, a, in the same purgatory that he's been in. Um, I'm just curious as to uh, what, what, was so pos- what was positive about it from your point of view. Well, I mean, positive is a, a joy is an overstatement. <laughs> um, but I mean, I had really prepared myself for, for an extradition order. And it came as a surprise and we were sitting there for 45 minutes before she actually got to the point, the final point, which is, which uh, blocked the extradition. Mm. And so it was, it was just a really kind of such a relief uh, that, that no one was expecting. And this um, magistrate specifically is, I mean, she was extraordinarily uh, tough during the hearings and, you know, she didn't give Julian a single concession uh, she didn't let him sit with his lawyers. Uh, you know, we tried to introduce evidence. She rejected it um, every step of the way. Uh, she was uh, 
she appeared very biased. Uh, but when it came to the to the medical evidence, she actually um, agreed with the with the doctors and also the the same. Basically, the U.S. Uh, doctors agreed uh, with with Julian's doctors. It was just a matter of degree, and so um, she she blocked it on that basis, and that was that was a huge relief. Yeah, it seems like that everyone was kind of expecting that he would be extradited and that that's what the ruling would say. And then even like I remember following the tweets, I think it was Kevin Gastola's tweets that I was following in real time. And you could see him like just by quoting the judge, everyone, it seemed like she was just going in the direction of he's so guilty of all of these things. And then that is kind of her takeaway. But then she's like, I think Kevin tweeted like Julian Assange was just saved by the the like cruelty of the U.S. criminal justice system, because the judge's decision was like, but his mental health makes it that so it's too much of a risk. So it was totally um, it wasn't exonerating. I mean, and it was a, I thought like such a problematic and and terrible decision, except for that one part that I guess gave some light at the end of the tunnel, potential light. Well, you see the the U.K. judges. Um, hands are really tied when it comes to extradition. That has to do with how the extradition treaty was negotiated between the UK um, and the US right in the aftermath of, of 9-11. So it's, it's really lopsided. And so the only thing the magistrate can do is say, these crimes in the US, if they had happened in the UK, would they be crimes here too? And she agreed with that. She said she couldn't look at any of the evidence that we had brought in a bunch of arguments and she said, that's her trial. You know, they, the defense says all these things are untrue, but I can't judge that. That's for the U.S. And so, really, she didn't. She didn't really agree in um, any of the points as to his guilt uh, or the correctness of the U.S. arguments. Uh, basically, the grand jury returns an indictment. They ship that over. The DOJ ships that over to to the U.K. And then the U.K. can't question that. We weren't able to cross-examine. Uh, the U.S. prosecutors on all their claims. And so what we did was we tried to bring evidence uh, that, that countered their claims, but then the judge said, well, this is for trial. So really it's just a, uh, a box-ticking exer exercise, but I think what the, what the um, judgment really reflects is a, a change of the political atmosphere. Uh, Julian's, you know, he was taken to Belmarsh almost two years ago now. Um, Belmarsh is, is the you know, highest security prison in the UK. Um, it's it's a nasty place, but it's nothing compared to uh, the US prison system where on any given day, it's estimated about 80,000 people are in solitary confinement. And then when you, when you add to that, Julian being a um, national, Julian's case being a national security case, Julian being a high profile prisoner, um, then of course they're going to isolate him. And then you have other layers like special administrative measures um, and supermax prisons. But even if you take those elements away, the very nature of the case and the fact that he's high profile, the fact that he's uh, you know, a, a, a risk of suicide, all these things um, make it a given that he's gonna be uh, in very isolated conditions. Which is, in, I mean, it's pretty cruel, right? Because the um, UN Rapporteur on Torture has said that he's been tortured and lots of people consider solitary confinement a form of torture. And we saw with Chelsea Manning that when she was suicidal, the, the like 
punishment was putting her in solitary, which just seems so sadistic. And it's hard to not see that as like an attempt to actually do the opposite of heal. Right. So, so when they put you on suicide watch, they're basically checking you every, I don't know how many minutes, like every 15 minutes or something like that with Chelsea Manning. Um, she couldn't wear any clothes. Uh, so it was the humiliation on top of it. I think a lot of people don't, don't realize what Julian's really accused of um, and, and what, what the, the nature of the crime uh, the U.S. is alleging. Um, so he's accused of, of publishing uh, basically information about Bush-era wars. Uh, some of it goes into, like, it's up to 20, 2010, early 2010, actually. So it does go into the Obama era, but um, it's about the Afghan war, the Iraq war, uh, uh, Guantanamo Bay prison camp, uh, the, the U.S. diplomatic cables, and the, war, the rules of engagement. And this is really, like, this is what WikiLeaks uh, was set up to, to expose. WikiLeaks is really a... Uh, product of of the Bush wars, of that the illegitimacy of those wars, and and the need to expose the normalization of, of torture uh, of detainees and and of um, entering into wars uh, with lies, and so WikiLeaks was set up to 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 address that, and so that's what he's he's being prosecuted over, and and um, WikiLeaks set up. Uh, partnerships with not just the you know New York Times, the Guardian, and so on, but actually a hundred different partners uh, to um, report the uh, substance of the cables and so on, and and that material has been used in court cases and so on. And so that is what the U.S. Uh, government under Trump decided um, it, it wants to put Julian away uh, for 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 life. Uh, not anything to do with anything else. And when you look at the actual accusations, they're so, like the Espionage Act is so uh, vaguely uh, worded. Uh, so the US government, the DOJ tries to put a lot, a lot of emphasis on this one charge that is uh, conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. Now, uh, before I even, talk about the substance, what they say is the substance of that charge. If you look at the relative weight of the, of the charges, there's 18 charges, um, 17 under the Espionage Act, and one under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, those 17 charges amount to 170 years. Uh, maybe people can't really quantify that. If you think, well, I have $175, just $5 is about this conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. That's how um, um, irrelevant it is, and and even the substance of it, the U.S. Uh, says that um, Julian entered into an agreement to try to crack a password that would allow Chelsea Manning to hide her identity. It's not even about obtaining information because Chelsea already had access to that information anyway, and she had already sent most of it um, by the time this alleged conversation took place. So, um, and then they have this other conspiracy charge is. Uh, like a general conspiracy saying that WikiLeaks posted this uh, most wanted leaks on its website, which is basically a, a wiki that people could, like, like Wikipedia, people can post things on there. It was like a general call for people to say, hey, um, it would be good to have the rules of engagement for, for these years and, and so on. And uh, the U.S. alleges that because WikiLeaks had this thing posted on its website, um, that Manning 
must have seen that and then decided to, to send similar things because they don't even match up um, to WikiLeaks. And that's the origin of the conspiracy. So the, the conspiracy, the, the whole case is so, it's such a construct, it's so absurd. Um, but that's what the Trump administration decided um, to, to drive. I'm fascinated by the use of the espionage act and it kind of boggles my mind that more reporters aren't worried about this case about and, and its implications for for um you know for anybody who works doing national security reporting of any kind but there's one part that i was confused about that i was, I was wondering if you could help with many of the charges are um phrased like conspiracy to obtain national defense information or uh, to receive or to publish does that information have to be classified? Is there, is there a designation for what what exactly is the forbidden material, or is that is that subjective? Can the prosecutors just decide that something is national defense information under this act? Because it seems like the act is worded to give them as much latitude as they want to prosecute anybody. Well, it is, and I mean, I'm not a I'm not a U.S. lawyer, so, <laughs> but but. Um... Yes, it's, it's basically information that the US government says could harm national security. So it doesn't technically even have to be classified. And you don't even have to publish it. You can just possess it. And when they say communicate, they're not even saying communicating it to the public. There's, it can be communicating within your media organization. This indictment is so dangerous. I mean, it really, it really shifts the relationship between citizen and state, a country that can where journalists or anyone really can, can report um, uh, on uh, secret government documents is, is um, completely different to one that where that is prohibited and you can go to prison if you do. And uh, once the US uh, goes down this road, um, there's no going back. And yes, I, I agree with you that many reporters are not fully aware of what the, the implications are of this indictment, but at the same time, I think the editors are, because if you look at Marty Barron from the Washington Post and, and the New York Times editorial board, and I think uh, USA Today and others, The Guardian too, like at the editorial level, they've put out statements saying this is really dangerous. This is chilling the free press. And I think they're doing that because they're receiving stories and they're saying, actually, we can't publish this. And the reason we can't publish this is because of the Assange indictment. When they're putting out those statements, it's because they're already um, coming up against that um, that wall. Um, so imagine how how much how many stories we don't know about uh, as as long as this is ongoing until the Biden administration drops this, um, which it must. Uh, then that's 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 a new reality. It's not about you know uh, the Assange indictment risks you know maybe uh, threatening the free press. It is. It is already um, having that effect, and that's why uh, it's it's. Uh, there's a consensus really by all these, uh, all the major free press uh, organizations um, that are against this Amnesty International and so on. Um, they, they see it because anyone who really looks into this can, it's really quite clear. There are a lot of other questions that I think both of us have um, about the ramifications of the treatment of Julian, but uh, can you talk about your background, how you met first through um, legal matters and then how your relationship uh, evolved? <laughs> yeah, sure. I met Julian in uh, 2011 um, because uh, 
Jennifer Robinson, who's one of the uh, uh, lawyers uh, representing Julian in the UK, uh, sent uh, an email around uh, to her, her network. And I, I received this email and I found, you know, WikiLeaks and the whole WikiLeaks story fascinating. Um, I had first come across WikiLeaks in 2008, I think, because I was writing about East Timor at the time. And they had published some, you know, interesting things about East Timor. Uh, and then I remember seeing Pull Out of Murder in when it came out in April 2010, uh, and finding this, you know, really disturbing. And, and uh, I cried when I saw that, and I still cry every, every time I see it. And I think for, for people who were, you know, politically aware in 2010, uh, and even you know people my age who maybe marched in the Iraq uh, uh, marches to, to stop the war and so on. Uh, that video was so significant because it kind of confirmed, you know, it was like we tried to stop the war, we couldn't stop the war, and then this was the evidence of of how um, the U.S. was. There were war crimes and there was impunity, and and this is the evidence. And the U.S. like the countries really need. Uh, the legitimacy of their population to to wage wars because you know we we, we pay for it um, and so once they lose that it becomes really intractable for them so this was this was like yeah we can actually expose what's going on and that will have consequences so I think it was a really kind of um, hopeful moment for for many people who had opposed the Iraq war that WikiLeaks was was able to um, kind of get past the the inertia in the public debate around the around the Iraq war. And just so people know, it's a video that captures basically war crimes um, that committed by the U.S. military. Um, it's video footage of it, and they kills um, members of the press, among other people, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, anyone who hasn't seen that video has to go and see it. It's like, you know, Kristen Krapson, the, the editor of WikiLeaks, says that, um, that video is to the Iraq War what the um, Vietnam the the girl um, oh, right. the girl that's burnt with napalm the picture of, of, of the girl in Vietnam is to the yeah Vietnam War uh, so it, it's such a powerful video because you're just kind of observing what the U.S. helicopter was seeing and uh, and then you find out that these, I mean, you can see there was, there was no provocation or anything. These were just civilians and, and two of them happened to be Reuters journalists and they're just, uh, you know, massacred on the, on the ground. And then there's a Samaritan, a good Samaritan that goes to rescue them. And then uh, he also gets gunned down and, and his two children are severely wounded. Um, so that video was really like, uh, wow, you know, um, I remember that very clearly. And, I happened to watch that with um, a, a friend of mine who who had been uh, in the military, who had been a, I won't say for what country, but he had been a fighter jet pilot. And he said, well, actually, I've seen lots of these videos. This happens all the time. And I found that really shocking. Um, so, yeah, and then, but that was almost a whole year before I met Julian. And so um, Jen, Jennifer Robinson got her email and then I 
just came to London because I wasn't living in London at the time and met Julian. Um, I think it was, it was around the time of his court, court dates uh, and his um, extradition hearings to Sweden were already underway. And um, that's kind of the context in which I, I first got involved because I'm Swedish, part Swedish, uh, speak Swedish and so on. Um, and I looked into that case and seen that, you know, it was highly politicized from the start. And I had been following things in Sweden. I had read the, like the, the uh, police reports and so on. And I could see that this was, you know, the whole, um, basically uh, there was an abusive process from the beginning and that's undeniable. And the UN basically looked into it and concluded the same thing in the end. Uh, the whole investigation fell apart for this very reason because it was really just um, incredibly abusive and um, basically created a, a limbo, a, a legal limbo for Julian where he wasn't charged, where he didn't have rights as a defendant, um, uh, where, you know, basically creating this public uncertainty around what was going on. Uh, that obscured what was really going on, which was the U.S. case brewing in the background um, and all this political pressure on Sweden and, and the U.K. at the time. It also created some, what, Matt, you call this the ick factor? Well, you can explain it better, Matt, because you came up with that phrase, but not reflecting him, but reflecting his the, the way that he's presented and treated, right? Yeah, I mean, we have this thing basically where you, there, if there's enough negative publicity about somebody, um, people will become hesitant to advocate for them. They'll become hesitant to uh, want to be connected to them in pu publicly. There'll be fewer op-eds in somebody's defense. And, you know, we've seen that a lot in recent times, but particularly in, in Julian's case, I think, uh, especially since 2016. I mean, I think that the- Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think there's like a, there's a bit of a, a myth about, you know, at some point, everyone loved Julian. I think that the media didn't like Julian, uh, like the like the New York Times. The WikiLeaks publications were so explosive and so significant um, that the, uh, the, the New York Times teamed up with WikiLeaks, but almost immediately distanced themselves. And that was because WikiLeaks really revolutionized journalism and, and they realized that actually their days were numbered and they had to transform. So WikiLeaks, basically Julian pioneered the, the anonymous Dropbox um, because he's, you know, he's, he's a cryptographer uh, to begin with. So he was able to think about the problems of source protection in a different way to, you know, non-cryptographic experts who, who uh, might not quite have understood at the time um, how the internet was, you know, tracking everyone and it was impossible to to um, anonymize people and also pioneered this kind of collaboration that now um, you know I think the ICIJ and others are, are also doing um, they didn't want to collaborate like the, the New York Times the Guardian you know they're, they're all competitors and so here came uh, Julian uh, this Australian kind of outsider uh, who who had these new ideas and new implementations and got these explosive leaks and I think there was a lot of uh, um, jealousy there. Uh, and because he, yes, he was, he was um, 
elevated. Uh, there was a lot of interest around his person as well. Um, but there has definitely been a, a smear uh, campaign. Um, and I think the hopeful thing is that the, the smear campaign is all based on lies, you know. <laughs> once, once it's once it's being based on anything true, then then you have to worry. But but you just see what happened after 2016. There were so many stories that had to be uh, retracted because they were just churning out complete fabrications. The, the most uh, famous one is the is the Paul Manafort visiting the embassy on three different occasions, which was a complete fabrication. And the Guardian published it on its front page, even though um, they kind of <laughs> had already. Uh, by the time, like the, in its print edition, I mean, by the time that the print went out, it was already clear that this was a, a highly suspect story. I think that the, the interesting thing about the Manafort story is that, um, yes, they put it out and they went all out and, you know, everyone who was on Twitter, was just exploding like, ah, oh, this is the- um, Smoking gun. The smoking gun, this changes everything kind of thing. Um, and then it, you know, immediately just fell apart uh because because it was a lie and it couldn't be it couldn't be corroborated by anyone and and uh, i think the washington post put out two articles about how, how this was an embarrassment um and the guardian basically retracted it almost immediately like they said mm, they changed the headline to you know manafort visited three times and then within an hour or two they said some people say kind of thing um, so, I mean, they haven't taken it off their website, but they don't really think it's true. And I think, um, even the, the author, Luke Harding, he's written, I don't know how many books about Russiagate. And even in his own book, he doesn't mention that story, which was supposedly to be this like really explosive thing, but it's just one example of many, many stories that came out after 2016. And really like when you, when you look at the, the Mueller report, which they, the, they decided to unredact uh, the part about WikiLeaks, I think the day before the 2020 elections. Basically, they, they, they found no evidence. There was no evidence um, to, to say there was any collusion. That was the conclusion, but you, you don't hear that um, because, you know, these, these things are just, it's just positional. People don't really care about the truth sometimes. They, they, they want to project a position. Um, and so, <laughs> it's frustrating, but I mean, I, I think it's quite clear to everyone really what's, what's going on now um, and that uh, they're after Julian because, because he exposed uh, U.S. war crimes and uh, they, they want to send a signal. This ties into what you were you were saying before about the resentment and the jealousy. You think they're making an example out of him to deter not just people in established journalism like the USA Today and the Washington Post, but anybody else who might think about doing it, um, you know, on their own. What they've done is very dangerous. They said that Julian, so you know, the the DOJ says, well, he's not a journalist which is irrelevant legally because the, the First Amendment doesn't just protect journalists, it protects everyone. That's, that's the whole point of it. It restrains Congress from uh, attempting to limit uh, speech, right? Uh, and so it's, it's a very dangerous situation when you have a government trying to say who is and who isn't a journalist. Uh, besides, if anyone uh, can 
has a claim to being a journalist is Julian because he's won dozens of journalism prizes and he's been a member of his journalist union since 2007 and so on. What they're also doing is creating a really dangerous situation even for established journalists in the US, not just because, yes, they're exposed to being prosecuted as well by the US, but because, look, in Julian's case, he's not American. WikiLeaks wasn't operating out of, Ameri uh, out of the US. He was publishing in the UK in collabor collaboration with um, other European publishers, yes, also the New York Times and so on. Um, but there's no, like, the jurisdiction is just what he was publishing about the US and maybe some people were reading in the US, uh, but also the rest of the world. So this means, you know, US journalists, for example, CNN was publishing, published the Wuhan files in uh, December, I think, um, that say that they're classified or, or restricted or whatever. You know, the Chinese government can now go, well, actually under our secrecy laws, uh, you are violating our secrecy laws. And I don't care that you're not Chinese. I don't care that you weren't in China. You were in the US and we can extradite you. And okay, maybe the US won't extradite a journalist on those, on those uh, grounds, but what if that journalist is in, I don't know, some country that is friendlier to China? Um, and, and like China, you know, take any country, any country can do this. So basically the, the US leads by example, for good and for bad, and now it's created a really terrible standard with Julian um, that that puts uh, freedom of the press globally um, in a in a very bad uh, situation. I know that it's hard to go back and forth, but uh, I just wanted to return to the personal because it is political, right? And and I I guess if you could just refer explain your your personal relationship, but also why you decided how, when, why, where you decided to reveal that. Yeah, so I mean, I've known Julian for, for a decade, right? Um, and uh, when we got together, uh, he was already in the embassy uh, for a few years. And and you were a lawyer at this point? Yeah, for his international uh, legal team, working with his uh, coordinator for the international um, uh, legal team, Baltazar Garçon in Spain. Um, but I was working out of the UK. And I was... Uh, you know, in the embassy practically every day. Um, and the embassy was some kind of strange, uh, Julian referred to it as a, as a spaceship. I mean, it's really, <laughs> I think people now can relate a little bit more to, right, to a bit like how, yeah, um, you kind of lost, lose track of time. And at the same time, there was a lot going on. Like there was, you know, things you couldn't anticipate, like WikiLeaks published. Uh, this uh, publication called Hacking Team in 2014, and it it contained evidence that uh, the Ecuadorian government had been spying on environmental groups, and it made the uh, the uh, intelligence service look really bad. And then, so the Ecuadorian intelligence service then became hostile, and you know, just things you couldn't anticipate. Uh, crises just appearing out of nowhere and it was you know the situation in the embassy was um pretty good uh for a long time uh with some you know it's always going to be difficult right. uh but up until 2017 
Uh, and that is when the uh, security company basically cut a deal with <laughs> with Las Vegas Sands, uh, which I know you've, you've spoken to Max Blumenthal about, but basically Las Vegas Sands owned by Sheldon Adelson, Trump's biggest financial backer. Uh, R.I.P. You know, yeah, R.I.P. Uh, the guy that that stood, you know, who is in the in the shot, like when Trump was being inaugurated, he's right next to Trump. Um, that guy, he's a casino was mogul um, who was also Las Vegas Sands um, actually has been documented uh, cooperating with the CIA in Macau. Uh, some court documents uh, were were published by the Guardian uh, a few years ago. Um, so. There's, there's a collaboration there and Las Vegas Suns had a secret um, contract with this security company that was in the embassy. And they were uh, basically spying on us from uh, mid 2017, uh, but it really intensified around Christmas 2017. And by this point, so 2017, you had been in a romantic relationship with Julian right. for two years at that point? It started in 2015, is that correct? Yeah, 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 for about two years. Yeah, and the embassy is like, it's, it's the size of an apartment, not, you know, uh, I don't know if you use meters, 200, about 200 square meters. There were cameras everywhere. Um, so not a, a very private space, um, but I don't know if you just... Make do. You make do, you yeah. know, like there's... There's always room for romance. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen images from inside the embassy. It was tiny and the corridors and most of the spaces were had visible cameras. And then also there were microphones and there may be, I mean, there, there were probably cameras that I didn't know about and I'm still kind of dreading, you know, other videos to come, <laughs> but maybe they won't. WikiLeaks yeah, will yeah, have yeah. to publish, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so then, so you have, and I understand this is per, like very private and you're a very private person. You have two children who are adorable and sorry, I always apologize to moms because you guys do the labor, but they look so much like Julian. Uh, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're there too. I see some resemblance in the, in the smaller one, the younger yeah, one, yeah. but it's like yeah. a spitting, the older one, especially it's like a spitting image. Yeah, yeah. Um, I watched video interview with you and there was a kind of, it seems like a watershed moment for you where a Spanish guard came up to you and told you something and that I think shifted the way you decided to to act and what you decided to do could you recall that moment and what it was yeah so basically I mean I I only came out as you know Julian's partner a year ago um and had to reveal <laughs> had to reveal that we had two children together and we were engaged in all these things and I had managed um to keep this from the wider public uh and it's not anything i recommend trying to to uh hide two pregnancies <laughs> um i basically wore lots of baggy clothes and you know i'm very i'm quite short um so you know you can't you also can't hide growing <laughs> right. i did hide it from the embassy staff as well i just uh avoided going there during office hours the guards obviously suspected everyone suspected um, but I thought, as long as they can't confirm I'm pregnant, then we'll just see how 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 we manage and how far we get. So I had um, Gabriel, our oldest, in in uh, 2017, 
and basically there was there was no way around it. I had to bring um, Gabriel to the embassy because that's the only way he'd be able to see uh, his father and vice versa. And so I uh, recruited a friend <laughs> to to bring the baby in uh, as his own. And uh, my friend was, uh, went there as a Chinese Chinese teacher and brought his baby along. His baby, and we did this for a good, I don't know, six months maybe. Uh, but then in December 2017, one of the UC Global Guards uh, approached me and took me aside and said, you know, we've, we've been instructed, we've been told uh, to, to get, your, get that baby's DNA and it would be better if, if the baby doesn't come in any, anymore because, you know, it's not safe. Um, they're asking us to do very strange things. What kind of strange things? Basically, the, the DNA, um, they were instructed to steal a, a nappy, uh, a diaper, I think you say. Yeah, a diaper. Um, and if they couldn't get the diaper, then then to get the, the dummy, the pacifier, oh. um, to, to, to confirm um, the, the DNA, to, to confirm the paternity, which means they already had Julian's DNA. Oh, right. Yeah. That's good. yeah. Can't you not tell from like stool samples right <laughs> i mean anyway like yeah yeah thing. yeah no i think they i i they, they weren't at that level yeah um, at that intelligence point. of intelligence yeah <laughs> yeah um but but then we also found out that they had afterwards um one of the uc global um workers uh then or a couple uh then went to the press to el pais and explain more of what they, they had been doing there. They had been recording the meetings Julian was having with his lawyers. Um, there were plots to kidnap Julian out of the embassy. There was even a plot to poison Julian. Um, they were going to poison uh, his, his food and put it in the fridge, uh, but they relented because they thought the fridge had a camera in it. Basically, that, that environment inside the embassy was really, really dangerous, and we could really feel it. I mean, I can't, I mean, imagine being in a, in a closed space with people who are literally plotting to kill you, um, plotting to, to, to steal your baby's, you know, DNA, and you could just feel it, that, that this was a really dangerous environment, and that you weren't in, you were basically at the mercy of some really bad people, and you couldn't really... You didn't know the exact shape of it, but there was just this atmosphere of, of threat. Um, and, and, you know, thankfully, uh, people have come forward to, to, to bring the specifics. And then we've known the connection to Adelson because we, we didn't know that. We just felt like this was a dangerous environment. And Adelson, you know, was very close to, to Trump. I know we've kept you on for a long time. I only have sort of one last compound question for you. The first one is just, uh, how is his health right now? How is he feeling? And the second is, you know, going forward, what's what's your primary hope uh, for the best case scenario? Is it political pressure on the Biden administration that they will eventually drop the case? Is it winning in court in the United States or winning in, in England? I'm just curious what, what you're hoping for um what what the best resolution that you can imagine would be 
He's been in Belmarsh prison for almost uh, two years. It will be two years in April. Uh, you know, it's, it's really tough because he's, he's a person that needs a lot of stimula stimulation, intellectual stimulation. Um, he's surrounded by, I mean, occasional interesting criminals, but criminals nonetheless. And uh, also many of them, um, very dangerous criminals and, and some psychotic murderers, literally. So he was denied bail, but I'm hoping that uh, a, a UK court will, will allow bail. But really like the best case scenario is the UK high court says, we don't wanna listen, we don't wanna hear this appeal, this is over. And that could happen. I mean, it could happen by April, really. Um, the, well, more likely uh, scenario is that this will go, that the appeal will be allowed because generally they do allow appeals. And um, hopefully it will up, uphold the decision in the lower court, court and that will be it. But that won't make the indictment go away. And so what needs to happen is for the Biden administration to see some sense and uh, stop this, uh, drop, drop the charges. Look, the Obama administration, they looked into this um, and the conclusion there by the end of the Obama administration was, we're not going to bring an indictment against Assange and we're going to commute Chelsea Manning's sentence. That was a clear political signal that they were, they were putting this uh, to bed. Um, and that was the result of, you know, a strong campaign to, to, to get Chelsea's, you know, 35 year sentence um, commuted and and, and that was successful. Then what happened? The Trump administration came in and Trump's administration very unwillingly was probably the most transparent, transparent US administration there's been in history uh, because there were leaks, there were constant leaks, there were leaks of Trump's you know, phone conversations with foreign leaders and all sorts of things. And the Trump administration's decision to indict Julian was a, a means to an end. And that end was uh, to find a way to prosecute journalists. And so if you look at the Obama administration, basically the reason they gave for not prosecuting Julian was, well, there were two. One was uh, Matthew Miller, the D former DOJ spokesperson. He, he said on several occasions, the Obama administration has decided not uh, to indict Assange because he's not a hacker. He didn't participate in any um, criminality obtaining this material. And so basically the Obama administration said there's a New York Times problem, which is you can't indict Assange without this also setting a precedent for the New York Times. And so what happened under Trump? Under Trump, they said, well, indicting Assange is actually the New York Times solution. We want to prosecute journalists. We want to be able, we want to have the option of prosecuting the New York Times because they're leaking things about the administration all the time. So how do we do that? Well, we indict Assange. And of course, uh, WikiLeaks, one of the first thing, the things that WikiLeaks did as soon as Trump was in office was uh, publish the biggest CIA leak in history, Vault 7. And uh, then, you know, the whole intelligence security establishment was pressing down on Trump to like basically cheering him on to do this. And so uh, now you have the Biden administration. Now Biden was in both, uh, Obama's administration and the message he's pushing is, uh, a return to sanity, right? Uh, a, a return to an independent Department of Justice. And um, well, if 
if he's going to be consequent with that, uh, presumably the Department of Justice that was independent was the one under Obama's administration. And uh, the logical uh, thing to do there would be to return to uh, the Obama administration's policy, which is not to indict Julian and to, to drop all the charges. I don't read too much into the, the fact that they haven't appeared, that they've proceeded with the appeal because that's kind of the, the fallback, right? It's, right. Default. Yeah, the default. There's, there's a UK deadline uh, for the courts to appeal, so they appealed. And there's an acting attorney general, um, Merrick Garland, is not yet in. Uh, this is an important, very high-profile case. This is this is basically uh, for the attorney general to decide. And so that's it's really important, I think, now uh, for for uh, people to continue to write articles, um, campaign for the uh Biden administration to drop the charges uh because it will be up to Merrick Garland and also the other top posts of the of the uh DOJ are also still to be filled right. um and so so there's still uh, a lot of time for for a policy decision to be made looking at the you know the dangers of this case and so it's important to for the people to continue to write and campaign and argue uh and expose why this indictment is so dangerous and i will say this as well like uh it's quite interesting uh i've just been looking into this a little bit but uh how uh trump's administration was really um overrepresented by uh people who were associated with this place called the, the catholic information center in dc bar dwyer um the white house council and others and those people are now gone. So I think there was there was a network of people um, that are now gone, and there's a new set of people coming in. And so there's an opportunity um, for there to be a break. Yeah, yeah. Back to normal, guys. Biden has two choices: he can go the Obama route or the Trump route. So everyone, you know, this is very excited to have Biden go the Obama route. Just got to drop it. Really last question for me. How do you talk about this with your kids? How old are they now? And how do you explain to them what's happening to their dad? They're two and three, so they're still very young. Um, and so I, I mean, the, the older one is turning four soon. And so I have to explain a little more. But so far, I mean, they speak to their dad over the phone and they haven't seen him since October. Um, but before, so before COVID, we would go um to the prison a few times a week i don't talk about it being a prison because i don't want them to interiorize the fact that their father's in a prison um because that's where bad people go right so i i i, I don't have a, a solution to how i'm going to explain it to them but hopefully he'll be free before i have to all right. Well, thank you so much yeah, for coming so much, on, yeah. and uh, we've you know we wish you luck, and um, you know we're hoping that uh, everybody comes to their senses uh, sooner rather than later in yeah. this case. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. That was great. That was great. Disturbing. Important. Yeah. Moving, sad, infuriating, scary. I saw your face, Matt, when she was telling that story about like how they tried to get the kids diapers yeah i know yeah no. it's 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 a little bit uh keystone cops yeah but the, but the, it's like almost everything else uh, in uh life like it, the absurdity 
uh, is always matched by the cruelty. You know what I mean? Like the, like this, when, when you have people who are do who are doing something this outrageous, right. There's always an absurdity factor that somehow is, um, is matched by the, the, the cruelty of it. Yeah. And, And what's so interesting also is that all the things that Assange and WikiLeaks exposed are, are present are like proven and demonstrated in the media's treatment of Assange. Absolutely. The failure of all these um, mainstream Mm -hmm. news organizations to kind of stand up in this this situation. It's basically a total capitulation and and an admission that they're that they've abandoned their adversarial mission completely. Also, something we didn't mention, I forgot to mention, is that, you know, there were journalists who know, and we talked about this with Stefania Maurizzi, you know, journalists who knew that they were spied on have not done anything about it, who, who right. know that they were spied on, had their, their phone, cell phones, you know, their battery taken out, whatever, like, there's a real problem. And again, less you need more evidence of the corporate media not doing its job and not protecting democracy, free press. I mean, these are everyone, no matter what you think politically, the the fact that there is not like outrage, the fact that people are not up in arms at the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, Washington Post, the fact that this isn't front page news is just such a sign of the absolute like. Oh, there it's, it's, it's a sign of their complete rollover. Yeah. You know, because they they just don't picture themselves. If you go back to the Pentagon Papers days right. where the New York Times it, it it was really interested in flexing its own institutional muscle, right? Like let's yeah. let's let's see, let's see um, exactly how far we can push this, and we're not we're not we're not afraid, and all of that, and yeah. that has completely been reversed yeah. in, in this modern age. Yeah. And it, it, and it has nothing to do with what you might feel about Julian Assange personally. This right. is just the whole issue of. You know they're gonna they're gonna pass a law that's gonna make it basically illegal to do national support security reporting. Yeah. And okay, and they just they just say okay, you know. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. So. On the plus um, side, um, the CIA former CIA directors will be checking their uh, uh, their white male privilege. So there's that. That's good. Yeah, I guess it's probably a net net plus in the end. But seriously, get over your. I don't care what you think about Julian Assange's personality. Has nothing to do with it. And like. Uh, yeah, everyone who cares about free press, everyone who hates Donald Trump for like, you know, his attacks on media should be up in arms about this. Well, oh, this is the worst thing he did to the media, and it's going to be continued by the Biden administration, right. and nobody cares. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. way to side with Trump over Obama, Joe. So that's it. That's that's the end of our uh, run at, at Rolling Stone, and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. We are eternally grateful to yeah. to the great magazine and. Um, uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But it's not a goodbye. Don't be so. Let's not be dramatic. I mean, we're saying goodbye to Rolling Stone, it's but like, to our we'll audience, we'll meet again. Right? Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like that. Yeah, yeah. To our audience, it's only it's come on board to the That's next right. chapter. This is cha- right. this is the next chapter. I'm very excited. It's a whole brave new world out there. And where can yeah. they find us again, Matt? At uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. Yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, uh, yeah. Thank you to Dan. Uh, Reed, Elvis, Sheermag. And all the rest, and we'll see you again.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.